Acts chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andy. Well, today, we're still in Acts. (laughs) So we started Acts a year ago. We're in Acts chapter 15. We have 28 chapters in Acts, so hopefully we'll wrap up by 2024. Now I hope that we'll get through it this year. I, I think we will. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a detailed guy, so it's hard for me to like go through big chunks. It's just how God created me. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do this morning was kind of go back through the book of Acts and, and look at like the big picture, like kind of the flow, like the narrative, the story of Acts. Uh, because chapter 15 is like a really key passage. It's a really important passage. And if we understand like what came before, it sort of helps us understand how big Acts chapter 15 is. And not just for the church in Jerusalem way back then, but also kind of for us today too. Uh, Because there's a big debate, there's a big battle about whether or not non-Jews can be Christians. Maybe some of you are Jewish in your heritage, but we're all believers. We're all following Jesus. Most of us are Gentiles. So this is really important, not just for them, but for you and for me. Uh, And so we're going to go back to the very kind of first verse that is like this outline for the entire book of Acts. It's really convenient that Luke, the author of Acts, gave us verse 8 of chapter 1, because this is like a roadmap 
for the narrative in Acts. It goes like this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So I think it's really helpful to read that verse with a map. <laughs> so you can see, I'm gonna, it's a little difficult to talk into a mic and look at this, but you can see, right, Jerusalem, the gospel is going to start there. It's going to spread throughout all Judea. Let's go to Samaria. And then ends of the earth. Now, today we're going to be talking about Antioch, which is like right up there. <laughs> nice Antioch. And by the, by the end of uh, the book of Acts, we're going to get to Rome, which is like, like right over there. So glad I planned that out really well. Uh, so we're going to kind of go on this narrative journey, and we see that begin to unfold. In Acts chapter 2, we get Pentecost. Pentecost is this, this festival, but all the believers are gathered together, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and like these pillars of fire. It's very reminiscent of like the Exodus story, Sinai. A pillar of fire was leading the people. Well, a new pillar of fire, the Holy Spirit, is going to lead the people on this journey. It's almost this journey into the wilderness of the world as they share the gospel. And so we see the Holy Spirit come, and the, the, the gospel is spoken in all these different languages. Like people are hearing the gospel preached, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in their own language. And it's like Jesus is saying, see, I have the power to make this a reality. I have the power to send my gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and I'm not even trying. God's going to work through the people. And so it begins to spread. And so we see the gospel kind of spreading in Jerusalem. Peter and John, they do all these kind of miracles and amazing things, and they really upset the local authorities. Get thrown in prison, thrown back in prison, uh, put on trial. And yet God's working. God, the gospel is spreading. 3,000 come to faith in Christ. 5,000 come to faith in Christ. The church is like exploding. It's growing. And yet it's still kind of localized. It's still in that Jerusalem area. And then something pretty bad happens. They experience their first loss. They actually have one of their members, one of their church leaders, get martyred. Stephen, the leader of the local church, he gets stoned to death by an angry mob of those in power in Jerusalem. And then suddenly, this persecution springs up in the church. And as we read the story, and maybe if you were living back then, you'd be like, well, what's going to happen? Like, is the gospel just going to stop? Is it going to just be snuffed out like a, like a flame, like a candle is snuffed out in Jerusalem? Well, no, because God's an unquenchable fire. And he actually uses the persecution to push the people out. You ever like, been in an uncomfortable situation that kind of pushed you to do something new or pushed you to try something different? Well, God uses persecution, suffering in the church, actually death, to push the church out from Jerusalem, goes into the region, they head up to Samaria. And then we read about Samaritans coming to faith in Acts chapter 8. This is pretty amazing. The gospel is spreading. The gospel is growing. But it still hasn't quite made that, like, that big cultural jump. Samaria, it's, it's, it's kind of rude, I'm going to say it, but the Samaritans are kind of like Jewish half-breeds. Right? The Jewish people do not like Samaritans uh, because they perverted some of the laws. They, they 
kind of like cut up their Old Testament scripture. Uh, they, for a long part of Jewish history, had like these golden calves that they would worship instead of going to the true temple. There's a lot of history there. And yet God has a plan to bring Samaritans to faith in Christ. And so he sends disciples, he sends his followers up to Samaria. But the gospel still has to go to the Gentiles, right? To the ends of the earth. And so we find Peter. Peter gets called to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum's not on my map, but it's like right in here. He has this vision of animals coming down, like clean animals, unclean animals. That means like animals that you were supposed to eat, animals you're not supposed to eat. And God's saying, take and eat. Have this like heavenly barbecue, Peter. <laughs> Enjoy the picnic. Peter's like, that's disgusting. I don't want bacon. And we're like, what, Peter? <laughs> No. God gives him this vision because he's saying, like, it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. What matters is Jesus, putting your trust and faith in him. Because the Gentiles are going to come to faith. And so Peter accepts this. He gets excited. They kind of say hey, at the church, hey, the, the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ Jesus too. The Holy Spirit is filling the Gentiles. It's like God's power and presence, that flame in the wilderness is, is filling them too. This, these are incredible things that are happening. So like the gospel is like catching fire. And then there's this church called Antioch, which is in Syria, which is like right, right up there. And, uh, and Barnabas goes up there and Paul goes there. Uh, and Paul, you might not know who he is, but he was back involved in that persecution in Acts chapter 8. Right? It, like he stood over the cloaks as the people stoned Stephen. And yet God's like, you know what? Here's my man. <laughs> I'm going to take him, and he's going to, I'm going to transform his heart, and he's going to become my missionary to the Gentiles. So that's what God does. Appears to him on the Damascus Road. Jesus appears to him, transforms him. And then him and this guy named Barnabas, an encourager, right? They set off from this early church in Antioch, and they go to Cyprus, and then they go up to Galatia, and they share the gospel in this region before going back to Antioch and reporting, hey, here's all the good things that we saw happen. Like, we, yes, we were stoned and chased out of cities, but we shared the gospel and people came to faith in Christ Jesus. And so there's this celebration in Antioch, like, hey, the Gentiles are coming to faith. The church is growing. The gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And then everything goes smoothly from there. And there's never been a problem in church history after that. <laughs> no, then we hit Acts chapter 15. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, there is a battle of believers. Because some people are pretty upset that the Gentiles are coming to faith. That the Gentiles just have to believe what? We've been having our, our traditions. We've been obeying the law of Moses, circumcising our, our children, obeying these laws for generations and and now, now you just have to believe in Christ Jesus and you can come to faith. And so there ends up being this council that's called the Jewish leadership, the church leadership, where they come together and say, can the Gentiles really be saved simply through faith in Christ? What about our cultural traditions? What about the law of Moses? So there's this battle, and we're going to be getting into that today. And when you think the word battle, maybe you think of a, I don't know, like a, uh, uh, a military engagement, but I, you know, this is kind of what I think of. <laughs> I think of like boxing. Uh, I don't know if you guys have watched this movie, uh, The Fighter, uh, about Mickey Ward, I think, right? 
uh, he was a fighter in Lowell. And, uh, and actually, they filmed this, this movie in Lowell at the Songus, Songus Center. I don't know how, if I'm saying that correct, but they filmed parts of it like the actual fights. And our own Katie Chilson <laughs> was in this. Actually, she was in the crowd in the boxing scene. So, like, we have a movie star. Did you know that at Cornerstone? <laughs> Uh, and uh, I guess Becky was with her. And I, my, my dentist like randomly brought this movie up and said that uh, I guess they filmed the fight scenes like all in a row, like, like over the course of several days, like the boxing matches. And the actual boxers that they hired to do it like were like really sore afterwards because they weren't used to fighting that long. And I don't, so it's kind of an interesting uh, film. Uh, and in a boxing match, right, you always have people that you sit in your corner between rounds and you, you have a moment to take a break. You can, you can, you can yell out, cut me, Mick. Uh, apparently a lot of boxing people are named Mick. I'm not sure what's up with that. Um, but I was just kind of thinking, like, in this passage, we, we see, like, three rounds. We, we see, like, three boxing rounds. Not, not every boxing match ends with a knockout punch. Some of them do. But a lot of them go many, many rounds. And in, in, in our passage, we, we kind of see three rounds. And the first one is this. Oh, before we get to that, I've got to define who are the, in the different corners, right? Who are the different boxers? So in corner number one, we have the believing Pharisees. I say this, to be a Christian, you have to become Jewish. To become culturally Jewish, you have to obey the law. You've got to get circumcised. Now, I kind of debated whether I should put the word believing Pharisees in front of it, like the word believing in front of it or not, right? Because when we think of Pharisees, we think of, you know, the people that wanted to crucify Jesus. Well, just because you're kind of identifying with that religious party in Jerusalem doesn't mean you can't believe in Christ. And so we seem to find some that were a part of that sort of religious party and yet also believing in Christ Jesus. Now, if you were to ask Paul, he has a little bit of a lower view of them in the book of Galatians. That's corner number one. Corner number two is, apparently I did not include corner number two. Oh, there we go. See, this is what happens when you redo the slides. You just mess things up. Corner number two, we have Paul and Peter. Uh, I would also kind of put Barnabas in this corner. The majority of the church is actually in this corner. They say cultural identity and law keeping won't save you. <laughs> We're saved by grace. So these are the two corners. What's going to happen? Well, in round one, I think I'm going to go backward. I'm going to go backward. There we go. You have to become culturally Jewish and obey the law to be saved, right? So this is, this is the Pharisees. They come out swinging. You've got you to obey the law. You have to become culturally Jewish. So what happens is that there's this new, hip, cool church called Cornerstone. I mean, Antioch um, up here, right? If you go back to our map. And there's, they're like, they're, they're the church that is just new, right? They're the ones who are full of Gentiles, Jewish people. They're sending their believers out on missions trips. They are active and they are alive. And then you have the Jewish church down in Jerusalem that uh, has been there since the beginning, right? Was there for the teachings of, like many of the believers saw Jesus directly. They're perhaps rooted in cultural tradition, maybe a little bit more conservative in kind of the way they operate. And there are some that come from that church and head up to Antioch, these believing Pharisees. And they go up to Antioch and they say, you know what? We, 
we don't really like what you guys are doing up here. Like the, 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 the people are coming to faith, but they need to still obey the customs and the, the, the circumcision, the, the laws that, that we've been obeying and we've been following. And so there's like this kind of heated fallout in Antioch. And we actually read about this in the book of Galatians. Maybe you've read the book of Galatians. It's a letter that the apostle Paul writes after uh, uh, visiting uh, uh, Galatia. But we read this. Uh, There we go. Galatians 2, 4 through 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So we're reading about this conflict in the book of Galatians that Paul didn't, uh, uh, Paul, Paul opposed them and said, you know what? The truth is, is that grace is what matters. And yet, still things happened. Uh, it says, what, when Cephas came to Antioch, so Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what we see here is that these people come up to Antioch. They, they kind of preach this false gospel, and people start to believe it. Even Peter, even Peter, because Peter's the one that had the vision from God about the Gentiles coming to faith. Part of me wonders, like, those, I bet they had some good reasons. I bet, I bet well-intentioned Peter actually uh, kind of listened to these people because he was trying to be good. He was trying to be a good kind of missionary, a good church leader. See, uh, I think, at least I read in one commentary, that, that maybe the, the argument that those believers, those believing Pharisees used from Jerusalem is, hey, Peter, you're eating with these Gentiles, these non-circumcised Gentiles, and, well, what you're doing is making it rather hard for the the Jews back in Jerusalem to come to faith in Christ Jesus because you're not obeying the law. And so, well, Peter, you're actually a stumbling block for the gospel. It sounds like a pretty good argument to me. Oh, well, then maybe I shouldn't eat with the Gentiles just so it makes it a little bit uh, easier for those believing, uh, those Jews back in Jerusalem to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so we have to understand like, okay, there are allowances we can make for each other, but is this an allowance that actually that actually uh, is counter to the gospel message, is counter to faith in Christ Jesus and, and salvation by grace. And so we continue in the stories, and we read this in verse 5. It says, For some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rope us up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So what happens is they come back from Antioch, they go down to Jerusalem, and then they have this Jerusalem council where they debate. And in round one, the believing Pharisees get up and say, got to become culturally Jewish, got to obey the law in order to be saved. Okay, there you go. But what are they doing here? What are they doing? Uh, there's this... Uh, there's this subreddit. I don't know, do you guys read Reddit? I don't know if anyone here reads Reddit. I'm not, I'm not recommending Reddit. That's just like a, a pit. Uh, but uh, Reddit, they have these like different forums, these different threads, and one of them is called gate, gatekeeping. And, and here's, the, here's the definition of gatekeeping. is when someone takes it upon themselves to decide who does or does not have access or rights to a community 
or identity. And so I actually think the, the believing Pharisees are gatekeeping. Now, some of these are kind of funny examples of gatekeeping. Uh, you know, uh, gatekeeping who can provide medical care. Sorry, only doctors and surgeons can save lives. So apparently someone said that. Saving lives? What kind of nurse are you? Are you a surgeon's assistant? Not quite sure how you save lives. So apparently if you're not like a surgeon's assistant, even if you're a nurse, you're not saving lives, right? So gatekeeping, saving lives. Deciding who is in and who's not. Pretty silly. How about, how about gatekeeping coffee temperature? I like this one. Hot coffee is the only way to drink coffee. Not warm, not cold, and definitely not iced. They've never been to Dunkin' Donuts, I see. That'll, that'll convert them. How about gatekeeping reading? Ever gatekeep reading? Hey, congratulations to anyone who read a book this year. How about 29? <laughs> not two dozen 200 to 300 page large flat flavor of the month feel-good books. I'm talking about Robert Caro's Lyndon Johnson deep dive biography, A Promised Land, Obama Volume 1, Robert Dalek's Kennedy, An Unfinished Life. But of course, I encourage any reading. <laughs> Gatekeeping reading. Well, you know, you didn't really read because you didn't read the massive biographies that I read. It's kind of like a humble brag here. How about this gatekeeping? That's like a little guy keeping a gate. That's the uh, uh, St. James Palace in London. Uh, it's the Buckingham Guard, right? So it's kind of like, for those visual learners, I don't know if you're a visual learner or not, right? But it's like the Pharisees have erected a gate. Uh, a gate uh, that says, you must be circumcised or the gate will not open. You must be circumcised or the gate will not open. That's pretty crazy, I mean, I've been saying circumcision a lot. Hopefully you know what that is, um, right? But like, it involved a procedure, a medical procedure where blood is spilt. Pain is endured so that you can identify as part of a community. They're not wrong that in order to be a part of the people of God, that blood must be spilt, and pain must be endured. But they are wrong on whose blood must be spilt. It's not our blood. It's the blood of Christ Jesus. And see, when Jesus got onto that cross to spill his blood, he threw wide the gate to become a child of God, to become a part of God's household. I don't know if you remember, but when Jesus was crucified, when he was hanging on the cross, when he died, what happened? A literal gate was ripped in two. There was this, this giant curtain, this thick curtain that separated the most holy place in the temple from the rest of the temple complex space. And that, that symbolized like God's presence is in the most holy of holies. You can't get to him. Only the high priest can get in there once a year. And then what did God do when Christ Jesus died on the cross? He just tore that curtain in two. Split from top to bottom. Only God could have done that. He was opening wide the gate through the blood of Christ Jesus. So, the question is, do we ever gatekeep Christianity? Do we ever come up with kind of ways that we keep other people out? Like, you don't look like me, you don't talk like me, you don't worship like I worship, you don't believe like I believe, you don't vote like I vote. 
Therefore, you're not really a part of the Christian community. This is born out of fear, right? Fear that, you know, that we really want other people to be saved. We really want other people to, to experience the love of Christ Jesus. So the question is, we have to figure out, like, what is gatekeeping Christianity and what is gospel Christianity? What are those gatekeeping issues that we can disagree on? We can still talk about them. We can still have conversations. But we're not going to require that you look like I look in order to be a part of the Christian community. We just did this whole class this fall, race class in the kingdom of God. We talked about different things, and one of the things that stuck out to me that I remember is this idea of a 70% rule, right? That if we're comfortable in our churches 70% of the time, we're probably doing something wrong, and the church is probably meeting my needs and my demands, fitting me. And that's an unintentional way that we gatekeep, I think. We're not willing to get a little uncomfortable and do things a little differently so that when new people come in or people who are culturally different than us also feel welcomed. Or when those new people come in, elevating them, lifting them up, putting them in positions where they can help shape and, and change our uh, kind of culture. So that we're not gatekeeping anyone intentionally or unintentionally. There are so many ways that we can gatekeep, I think, without even trying. Sometimes, you know, we do it intentionally with the, well, like with the best of intentions. I was just thinking through some of them, right? And I, I think we've been through kind of a tough season this fall politically. Uh-oh, he's going to talk about politics. But just this idea of like, hey, you have to be a Democrat to be a Christian. Or you have to be a Republican to be a Christian. That's not of God. There's no political party that God fits into. Now, maybe your beliefs lead you to certain conclusions, but there might be freedom to, to disagree on some of these issues on, on what God cares about. We don't want to gatekeep, gatekeep with things like politics. How about, how about science and faith? You're going to be talking about apologetics, right? And one of the things that has happened in our culture is that science and technology have been, or science and faith have been put at odds. Like, you can't, you can't believe in faith if you believe in science. That's a false, false battle. That shouldn't be so. But I do think that we need to take responsibility for our part in it, right? We can't just blame the culture. One of the ways we do it, honestly, is when we insist that you can't believe in evolution or an old earth. I believe that you can believe the earth is four and a half billion years old or 4,000 years old. I don't think the Bible tells us one way or the other. I think you believe in evolution. I mean, obviously, you have to believe that God is using it. You can believe that God created out of nothing and just made people and made the animals. You can do that. I don't think we want to erect gates where God has not erected those gates. Maybe you disagree that those are gates that we need to keep. Well, I would disagree with you on that. But I'm happy to talk with you about it. We can have a conversation about it. And so we have to identify, where are these gates? Now, how about gatekeeping yourself? Do you ever gatekeep yourself? By this, I mean always telling yourself, I'm not good enough, or I haven't done enough good deeds. Or, Man, I haven't, I haven't read my Bible enough today or prayed enough today. Therefore, I'm not really a good Christian. I'm not really loved of God. Did you know that the printing press wasn't invented to the 15th century? <laughs> so most people didn't own Bibles 
until the 15th century? Does that mean that every Christian before the 15th century was a bad Christian because they couldn't do personal devotional time and scripture reading? No. See, Sometimes we put these pressures on ourselves and we close these doors because it just makes us feel better. It just makes us feel religious. Oh, if I can kind of wiggle my way through this gate, well, then I, I must be a good Christian. Now, hear me. It doesn't mean those things are bad. I actually think personal Bible reading and prayer time is really good, and we need to do that. But we also need to be careful not to erect gates where God has not erected them. It's really good to think about science and and, and creation and how we got here. I think that can honor God and that, that tension and that wrestling. But we need to make sure we hold it the right way. The same with politics. It's a worthy conversation to talk about those things. All right, I've talked a lot about gatekeeping. You get the idea. Maybe you can think of other gates that I have not mentioned. Round one was, have you ever become a culturally, you have to become culturally Jewish to, and obey the law to be saved. And round two is, we are not saved by cultural identity or by works but by God's grace. So we're looking at verses 6 through 11 here, where Peter gets up and begins to speak. Uh, and he talks about how like, uh, he uh, experienced the Holy Spirit welcoming in the Gentiles, welcoming in uh, these people who aren't culturally Jewish into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit came on them, and it was through faith. It wasn't through them being circumcised. So it's like they, they had the Holy Spirit before they were circumcised, so you can't insist that circumcision is required for, for salvation. And his kind of sum point is this, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile, what matters is through faith in Christ Jesus. He even says, like, we couldn't keep the yoke. The yoke is a word for law. Like, it kind of symbolized this, this heavy burden. It's like the Jewish people couldn't obey the law. Why do you think they can? They're not even Jewish. And actually, Paul kind of says the same thing in Galatians, in that same section, Galatians chapter 2, that really parallels Genesis 15 nicely. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, you can't just like obey these Old Testament commands and then you're going to get into heaven. That's not how it works. We're justified by Christ Jesus, by trusting in him, not by trusting in ourselves. And that's the gospel, isn't it? I'm not going to trust in my deeds. It's not, it's not like... Jesus plus my good works or Jesus plus my cultural identity equals salvation. It's just Jesus is salvation. Grace. Jesus forgives and welcomes us into his family. And then round three is that God always planned to save the Gentiles by faith. So if we look at our passage, it's like Peter gets up, he speaks, he says, you know, it's by God's grace. And then they all get quiet. You know when it's quiet that it's it's good. Like they're hearing God's will spoken through Peter. And then what happens? James, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, actually not really Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and says, God always planned to save the Gentiles by faith. He always planned to save us by faith. And he reads this passage, verses 16 and 17, that says, oh, uh, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen 
and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. He makes these things known from of old. Of old. So what, what James does is he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes the book of Amos. There's this prophecy that like, David's house, right, King David, the Jewish people, their house is going to be ruined, destroyed, and we see that with the exile and everything that happens to Israel, uh, the, the, the fall of its kings. But I will rebuild it and I will restore it. How are you going to restore it? Uh, the, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, like through the remnant of mankind, they're going to seek the Lord, all of the Gentiles, they're just going to call on me. So James is saying it was always God's plan. The non-Jews, that the Gentiles would call on God's name. And they do call on God's name when they call on the name of Christ Jesus. So the question is, have you called on the name of Christ Jesus? It was always God's plan that you could come to salvation through faith in Christ. Have you called on his name? Do you believe in him or is this just a cultural identity thing that you do? Right, because we have to look back at the passage and say, do I just identify as a Christian culturally? Like I share the values or I think it's a good thing to have morals or go to church. Well, those are nice things, but they won't bring you into eternity with Christ. Only Christ can bring you into eternity with him, trusting in him, receiving the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus. And so here's the, the big kind of closing point. It's not really Peter that wins or the Pharisees that win or Paul. It's grace. Grace wins. Grace is a gift of God and grace wins. I love how James ends the passage. He does say, you know what? Here's my judgment. Don't trouble the Gentiles who turn to God, but do write to them that they should abstain from idols, sexual immorality, things strangled from blood. So he does say, like, here's kind of a compromise. We're going to show grace to the believing Pharisees, actually. We're going to make it so that the Gentiles still shouldn't do these things that might cause their Jewish brothers to sin. But when it comes to the heart of the gospel, salvation is going to be through faith in Christ Jesus. So we'll look at that a little bit more next week, but it's just this idea that like grace wins all around. Grace wins for the Gentiles. It's through faith by grace that you are saved, and grace wins for the Pharisees. Hey, we're going we're gonna to take a little step your direction as well. So the question is, how can we as a church community make sure that grace wins? How can we experience grace ourselves individually, that grace is doing something to my heart, that I am receiving the free gift of God's grace, forgiveness? And how can we make sure that grace wins in our church community, that we're not erecting gates, that we're not gatekeeping each other somehow? It's so easy to do, right? Like I have a blind spot for the gates that I erect. I can see gates other people erect. But the gospel says, hey, we're going to come together. We're going to make sure that we're, the right gate is in place. Faith through Christ Jesus, and that's it. That's not easy, but grace will win. Let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for this message. Thank you for Christ Jesus and that grace wins. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here as we, as we walk out. Would you, would you help us to experience grace in our lives? We love you. Um, and I pray for everyone that couldn't be here today, that you would bless them and show your kindness and your grace on them. Lord, help us to, to show grace to one another, to experience grace, your grace in our lives.
It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.